0: So why does God only appear at times like this in a small, still, empty cave? This is a curious reading. Elijah was on the run. was; authorities were after him. The leaders of the religion were ready to kill him. And he hides out on the mountain, and he needs a big God. He needs a powerful God. He needs a mighty warrior to rescue him from times of trial. What does he get? He gets what writers have called the sound of sheer silence. Poetic image of how God comes to us not in the fire, not in the earthquakes, not in the storms, not in majesty, not in glory, but in almost emptiness. And What does that say to us today when we struggle with our lives, with all the tragedies and triumphs, with all the griefs and all the gains, with all the losses and with all the wins. How do we find this God who speaks more often than not, more often than we would think possible, in the thin places of our lives? We could have the next slide. There are three issues for the early church, and I think listening to how those early Christians coped with these three struggles can speak to us now as we try to interpret this passage in light of the 21st century. The early church had three issues, and it took them four or five hundred years to sort this mess all out. And we still struggle with these today. The first issue is that of what we call anthropology. Who are we? Why are we here? What are our lives about? Second is theological. Who is God? Who is this God that we long for, we thirst for, we desire? Who is he or she? And how importantly, most of all, how do we reach out to him or he reached us? And the third question is the Christological. Who is this mysterious, wandering, itinerant carper's son named Jesus? What did he mean? What is his message for us today? We're going to talk today, and we may save the Christological question for another sermon, and unfortunately, like it or not, you're going to see me a few times over the next few months as Charlotte continues to recover, and Robert takes some much-needed time away periodically. I'd like to talk a little bit about the relationship between the anthropological question and the theological question. The early church had two fascinating characters that they had to deal with. Pelagius and Augustine. They are both 4th century theologians, one from the power of Rome and North Africa, and the other from the British Isles. And if you think Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carson would go at it tooth and nail, you haven't seen anything until you've learned the story of these two. <laughs> Augustine was elected bishop from Hippo at the height of his career. Powerful writer, gifted theologian, The church was struggling to understand its identity in the midst of the Roman Empire. and So they elected this man bishop. Well, he he had some issues. He had two mistresses, one longstanding and one illegitimate son that he wanted to bring to Rome and continue his relationship with his mistress and his son. His mother was a very devout Christian, but very strong-willed, who he often rebelled against. Augustine was a complex person, and if you're interested in long, dense, interesting, self-reflective books, his two books called The Confessions in the City of God are worth a look at because he struggled with who he was as a broken, fallible human being. And his only answer out of that struggle was grace. How do we get grace? How do we receive grace? But he also came up in that interesting quest by taking his own brokenness and extrapolating it to the human condition. And for him, the human condition was one of brokenness and sin. And he thought we are born that way. Now, interestingly enough, despite the lack of genetics as we knew it, he was convinced that sin came through the human condition through the women. We would call that autosomal dominant Genetics in today's language. If it wouldn't be for Eve and her sinfulness, humans would still be living in the Garden of Eden. Hmm. Hmm. He didn't understand that humans might have the capacity to be born full of love and tenderness from the onset. So his counterpoint in this whole struggle of who humans are was an unknown British monk named Pelagius, and he looked at the face of a newborn baby and said, this is the face of God. This is the face of God. We are not born with anything but love and purity. As the Genesis text says, God looked at creation, and what does he call it? He doesn't call it broken. He said, it is good. For Pelagius... The goodness that we all have has been in there since our inception, and we make bad choices. So the the distinction between original sin and original blessing was a part of the early church's struggle. And like a lot of pivotal points in church history, there are winners and losers. The winners get to write doctrine and write church policy, and the losers get pushed aside to the margins. And unfortunately, that's what happened with Pelagius' understanding of the goodness possibly in the human condition. So in the quest for who we are in this brokenness, particularly in the British Isles, Pelagius thought there is good all around us. God exists in all of creation, in our rivers, in our streams, in our mountains, in our skies. He saw that we make bad choices. Sure, we all do that. But he saw that underneath of all of that, there is so much goodness in the world that is there for the taking. But God seems so far away, so distant. This notion of God ensconced in the heavens, not accessible, was foreign to Pelagius. Pelagius existed in the British Isles, where the spirituality of the people before Christianity was deeply embedded in the realness of the fabric of the earth, the rivers and the streams. But they also understood that God needs some kind of a thin place, they called it a liminal place, to reach us. So God is not just separate. God is not just the God of Aristotle, the watchmaker God who wound us all up and gave us a jump start with the Big Bang. God is in this fabric of life in all of our brokenness. So there's winners and losers, but unfortunately this notion that there is goodness to be had and there is accessibility in the thin places of life. The Celtic version of Christianity was really quite, um, almost obsessed with the notion of thin places. A place where God's presence can become manifest in spite of the boundaries we like to erect between us and the other. And that's the most interesting paradox of all. If I could have the next slide. So, God, okay, I can't quite see it. Um, the Early church after Augustine and Pelagius had their heated discussion by letters. As far as we knew, know, they didn't ever meet each other. They attacked each other vigorously. The world became divided into the sacred and the profane. Isn't that a strange sense of the word? The sacred and the profane. When Jesus' is death, what does one of the New Testament writers say happens to the temple curtain? It's torn in two. The temple curtain was meant as a place to keep God safely tucked in with only a few elect, flo- few the leaders of the church, having the authority to access God in the world which was considered sinful and damaged and profane. The tearing of the temple curtain represents the breaking down of our boundaries. See, I think we humans are very good about boundaries. We like dividing the world as we see it into the good places and the bad places. We're, of course, the good, right? The people on the outside of our boundary, they got it wrong, so they're the bad. I think boundaries are human constructs, and unfortunately, we can create them in our personal lives, our, our spiritual lives, our communal lives. We divide ourselves into red and blue, liberal or conservative, male or female, broken or good. And what a spirituality of liminal places tells us is that those boundaries don't hold water. They're artificial. They're, by, they're a way to keep God from breaking into us in places we most uh, likely are not to expect it. The idea of God is not other, but here, here in this space, in our hearts, is a gift of the Celtic spirituality of a thin place. Spirituality of thin places breaks us out of our comfort zones and we're transformed. That's the whole purpose of a thin place. It's not to give us a certain type of knowledge, is to transform our hearts so that we can go out and re-engage the world in a different and constructive and meaningful way. The Celts felt that thin places are only three feet apart, and in fact, they are often right with us. So, I'd just like to tell you two or three stories, and then I want to wrap this up. These are examples of how thin places come to us, not in the big places of life, but in the small places. I was on call one night about 25 years ago at 2 o'clock in the morning. got a call that a man was having a heart attack. And that's what you do. You get up and you go take care of of a patient. He had an occlusion of the artery in the front of his heart we call the Widowmaker. The only problem was this was the biggest, maddest, angriest human being I've ever seen in my life. He was six feet seven, a prisoner from our penitentiary near Gatesville, Texas, to Huntsville, for who was sentenced to execution. He was shackled at all four points with handcuffs and two armed guards at the bedside. And he looked like if we let him loose, he would just as soon rip my heart out as anything. And I tried to get a history from him. That's what you do when you have a heart attack. What do you tell me your symptoms? He wouldn't speak. And finally, I told the guards, I said, I don't know exactly the protocol for this. It's now 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, but I need to get his history so I can do what my job calls me to do. And said, well, you can't take him loose. He's dangerous. And I said, I'll tell you what. You get your pistols ready and stand right here and unshackle him, and let's just see what happens. So, against their better judgment, they did that. And I pulled up a chair, and so I wasn't above him, but same eyeball level. And I held his hand, and I said, Now tell me your story. And this man started crying like a baby. And I heard the story of his life, and his struggles, and his brokenness. We were as different as night and day. He was black, I was white. He was a prisoner, as I was free. He was poor, and I was moderately affluent. But on that day, the boundaries of our differentness melted away. I felt the commonness of humanity that we all have the potential to feel if we just let God speak to us in the thin places. All the boundaries became artificial, and left underneath that was a common sense of both grace and brokenness. Second experience was on a winter day fishing on the frying pan. I'll show you a picture of that at the very end. It was a winter day, snowing. Couldn't see from here to Robert, but I could hear the rising fish. I knew they were there, but I couldn't see them. The flies they were feeding on were the same size and shape of a snowflake. And it's, and I wear glasses anyway. But I have good glasses for fishing. But as hard as I could see, as hard as I could try to see, I couldn't see the fly or the fish. I finally had to step out of my limited vision and move into the heart of God. I had to time my cast with my eyes closed towards where I could hear the fish sipping. And over the next 30 minutes, probably caught 20 or 30 fish. I saw with the eye of God, the Hindus, put that's why they put the red dot right there. It doesn't have anything with the vision in my retina. It has the way we see things differently and trust God to speak to us even when our vision is dimmed. And I think the question is, where are our thin places? We all have that capability. And I would say there's three things about thin places to keep in mind. One is you can't plan for them. The harder you try, the more elusive they're going to get. If we go out in search of a thin place at the bedside or at the grave or at the river, they won't show up. They won't open up. So have no expectations. If we lower our expectations, then God can has a chance to speak to us in the sound of sheer silence. A final experience I'll share with you, quite personal, quite odd, I think. Uh, a few years ago, I was at dealing with prostate surgery and got septic three days post-op. And I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning with a blood pressure of 70 over 40 and a temperature of 104 and managed to get my wife to drive me to an emergency room where I was in septic shock. Well, my infectious disease colleague, of course, you know, doctors have this capability not to tell you the truth all the time, Um, he said, oh yeah, you had an 80% fatality rate. Well, you didn't tell me that, but uh, nonetheless, um, because I had a week's worth of IV antibiotics and made a full recovery, and on the way home, the exit from the hospital is a tunnel of trees, so you can see the blue sky through the trees, you can see the green of the tree leaves, and that 60 seconds of driving down that road, I've never seen colors, and I've never seen light like that. It was if all the barriers between me and the world were gone, and now I was traveling through a thin place into a different and hopefully new life. I didn't plan on getting sick. I didn't plan on feeling God in the car on the way home from the hospital. But that's when God spoke to me the loudest and said, This is where I am right now. So where are thin places? Where in our lives do we find holiness that breaks us open? One place is nature. A second place is music. I just felt a thin place with this lovely music. Silence is a thin place. Another quick story about music I'll share. Matt can appreciate this. A colleague of mine from medical school, their son was lost, was born the day after our son, was diagnosed with a fatal congenital heart condition. And one month before his walking down the aisle to receive his graduation diploma, he dropped dead and died. His father went on to become a hospice chaplain, his mother went on to become a music therapist. And I brought them to a retreat for pre-med students at Baylor and she did something that I would never thought possible. She brought an auditorium with 100 pre-med students to their knees. She had each one lay down on a table, and she played a big harp, not a concert size harp, but manageable size, on their chest and played Be Thou My Vision. You could feel, when that harp was placed on your chest, you could feel the tones penetrating deep into your soul. I don't know how else to explain it. So music opens us up to a thin place. Music opens us up to God speaking to us. Art. Some people can respond to a beautiful image of art the same way. Grief can be a place of a thin place. When we have an unexpected tragedy in our midst, as we all do, a, a cancer, an accident, the loss of a young child, grief opens up to the poss- us up to the possibility of God speaking in silence. And finally, the sacraments. You know, we all think the sacraments are what the church says they are. Communion, baptism, last rites. A real definition of sacrament is anything that opens us up to the presence of God. It can be a cup of coffee taken in a morning reading or a sunrise or a walk. Sacramental life is all around us. It's not just for the church to hand to us what we get and what we receive in the living of our daily lives. The thin places I would finally close are not of heaven. They're of earth. They're God's way of reaching out and speaking to us in the midst of this earthiness, this brokenness, this pain. But we come finally then, face to face, like Elijah, with the beauty and glory of a God that is living with us now And as the Episcopal prayer book would say, in this fragile island earth, our home.